This episode has a content warning. There is a story that we talk about a person who was a child predator and potentially grooming somebody. So if that is a trigger for you, you might want to skip this episode. Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, a Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the Bodacious Block Party Network, the dashing Daniel Markwig, and the jaunty Jim Anderson. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and JT, and we are going to talk about how one bad player can make you change how you GM in both good and bad ways. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our get to know a gnome question, which is, tell us about a time that you're pretty sure you were the bad player at the table. JT, I'm going to start with you. So I was pretty young, 16 or so, maybe 17, 16, I'm pretty sure, because uh, uh, second edition AD&D had just come out. It had, it had been out less than a year, maybe six months. And I was playing the role playing game like it was a computer based video game. <laughs> Meaning if my character died, oh, well, I'll just restore from a save point, which in D&D terms mean you roll a new character. And I really didn't care if my character died or not, because I knew I could just make a new one. Unbeknownst to me, the Game Master was actually more of a storyteller than just run combat type Game Master. Uh, so, he, I, I mean, for the time, this is what, 88, 86? <laughs> I don't know. Mid to late 80s. Anyway, uh, he was a bit of a, ahead of his time in the fact that he was trying to tell a story not just run a game. And that was uh, eye-opening for me because he actually had to pull me aside and he did it properly. He did it right. He did not chastise me in front of the group. And he had to pull me aside and go, dude, I got plans for your characters and they keep dying because you're doing stupid stuff. Can you tone down the stupid so that you know your character will actually live? Because I got plans for you. I got plans for all the characters. So that was a big growing moment for me. And I, I did as he requested, and I toned down the stupid, and uh, we agreed I would make a new character, because I wasn't really attached to the one that I was playing at the time. He was a halfling illusionist. Flower Boy Flatfoot. I still remember the character's <laughs> name somehow. <laughs> I ended up making a High Ogre Ranger, High Ogres being the Irda from uh, Dragonlance, because he was leveraging the Dragonlance book, but not their world. Uh, he was running his own homebrew world. Uh, and I played Midnight, and I played him for, gosh, a good two, three years. And uh, love that character. So, uh, so how about you, Jared? What was the time you were a naughty boy? <laughs> I would like to say that I, I was as young as, as you for this anecdote, but this is like um, actually not <laughs> as far back as I would like. <laughs> this was probably around 2005, six or so. I've talked about this campaign before where the DM had his story that he wanted to tell and we all had to pick a role on top of you know making up the character so one person had to be the prince and one person had to be the bodyguard and all of that my friend who was playing the prince got kind of burned out on the lack of agency that he had so we got into this situation where we should have been more mature people at this point in time and just said to the dm we are not having fun <laughs> Either maybe we should quit playing or, you know, could we work this out? But it just got so insufferable. And both of us were intentionally trying to get his character killed <laughs> because his character was the plot line. <laughs> so if the prince died, this whole thing would just implode. So me being the bodyguard, I kept advising him like whenever he would say, I don't know, I, I think I can make this 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 uh, giant jump and make it to the other side. 
I think you can too, sir. Uh, you're <laughs> you're extremely confident. <laughs> I don't think you're going to miss and fall a hundred feet. Nice. <laughs> the DM was just constantly. You wouldn't do that, <laughs> and we just kept finding more buttons to push to try and get his character killed. <laughs> so, Ange, what about you? When I was a newer player, I was a lot quieter, a lot shyer at the table. So I doubt I ever ruffled too many feathers when I was was newish. I will say the problem started when I became more confident and, and <laughs> was a better GM at my own skills. Because sometimes I'm not the most self-aware person. And when I am getting annoyed at a game, I get really obnoxious. You know, whether it's on purpose or not, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm a frustrating player when I'm getting annoyed with a game. And several years ago, my buddy was running The Sprawl, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse cyberpunk game. And he had not really run Powered by the Apocalypse, whereas I had run a lot <laughs> of Powered by the Apocalypse. And about... Halfway through that one shot, I realized I was backseat GMing that game because <laughs> I kept telling him what he was doing wrong. I kept telling him how he was supposed to be doing things. And I realized I was being a real jerk. <laughs> and that was not fair to him or the rest of the table. I ended up shutting my mouth for the like the last <laughs> third of the game. But I mean, the damage is done there, and I apologized to him later. And I think I even wrote a gnome stew article about this around <laughs> that same time, like when you're the problem at the table. Because I realized I have to be very careful when I'm not the GM and getting annoyed. Because if I am the GM and I'm getting annoyed, well, we're going to get talk about this. You can do things to fix stuff. But when you're the player, you, you got to be a little careful because you don't want to ruin things for everyone else at the table. So speaking of moving on to our main topic, if you've been playing RPGs for any length of time, you've got some more stories about bad players at the table. Having an interaction with a problem at the table can make many of us adjust how we play and run in both good and bad ways. And we thought it would be a fun conversation to have with a few of us together and how we've adjusted our GMing in response to a bad player at the table. So why don't we start with uh, Jared? Tell us about one of these instances where you had a bad thing happen at the table that made you change how you run. This will tie in nicely, because when you listen to this, you can go back and read my review of Demigods, the PVTA game. But one of the times <laughs> I was running that game at a convention, I had a player that picked the Trickster playbook. And in the Demigods game, it is a, a modern urban fantasy game where everyone is the child of a god, and there are different playbooks that, you know, have to do with divine portfolios. This particular player took the trickster and somehow decided that that meant he got to derail everybody else's fun. Oh, no. Yeah, I've had this happen before with those archetypes. Yeah, basically when everybody else, you know... A, a divine patron asked them for a favor and like, hey, can you go fix this thing because you're all really powerful? And they decide to do it, except the trickster is like, I don't know why I would do that. And I was like, well, that's cool, but you hang out with the rest of them and we're playing at a convention. He's like, well, okay, I'll go along with it. But then proceeded to, at every turn, go find something else to make worse instead of fixing the problem. And basically got me to the point, and I know better than this, where I was basically running a game for him and then running a game for the rest of the people and bouncing back and forth between the two. And 
when that wasn't enough for him to get spotlight time, he started doing stuff that was actively undermining the players at his location instead of just, you know, doing whatever he wanted to do. This caused me to say, okay, when I play this game again, I am not going to include the trickster playbook. (laughs) I don't know that it was the playbook's problem. In fact, I actually do know it was not the playbook's problem, but it was just so obnoxious at the time that I didn't want a repeat of that experience. So I decided, you know what? The next time I run this, I am not including that playbook and I'll see how it goes. (laughs) I've run into this exact same thing running masks with the delinquent playbook. Because again, it's it's a trickster archetype. Actually, I've also run into this running Tales from the Loop and the Troublemaker archetype. Because these are characters that are designed to be tricksters, but sometimes you get players who pick them up who think it's basically permission to just be a jerk. Yeah. I think the knee-jerk reaction to that is to just not put those types of characters out on the table because you just don't want to deal with that again. But again, it's not. Like, I've had some amazing, amazing players pick up either the Delinquent in a Masks game or the Troublemaker in a Tales game. Those players get it that, yes, the character is going to kind of be a little chaotic and a little over the top, but the character desperately wants to be part of the group. Yeah. And if the player gets that, they can be a fantastic addition to a game. But you never know if a stranger sitting down at your table at a con is going to be, are you a good delinquent or a bad delinquent? (laughs) You know? Right, right. The, The other thing that I find kind of amusing about that is the playbook for the delinquent in Masks is partially based on Kid Loki. So we're kind of talking about the same template here when we're looking at like the yeah. trickster or the uh, the delinquent there. What about you, JT? What's a time you've adjusted how you run things because of a bad experience with a player at the table? So it's not so much running the game, but the the social environment that comes along with you know role playing games. This happened not too long after I got pulled aside and was told stop being stupid <laughs> and that was joe that, that did that for me not to me but for me it was it was a very good conversation uh he moved away to college and i stepped up as the game master and then our uh, local game store shut down so we had to start not gaming there obviously otherwise we'd be trespassing and breaking and entering and all that good stuff <laughs> then you would be the delinquent <laughs> then we'd be the delinquent yes so we started playing at uh two brothers that, that was in our game group we played at their house because that way they didn't have to travel and everybody else could go to their house we adopted a new guy into our group, two new people into our group. One was an older fellow. When I say older, he was probably late 20s. We're late teens at this point. That's a significant age difference at that point. At that point, it is. Yes. Yes. And then we had a younger fella that was 11, maybe 12. So we kind of had this, this broad spectrum of, of age groups. Most of us were firmly in the middle, that kind of 17 to 19 year old. And then we had the younger fella and the older guy. We didn't have a social contract because those didn't exist back then. We didn't have session zeros or meet and greets or anything because you, st- you showed up with your dice and you rolled some dice and you went home, right? That's just how it was back in the day. Anyway, the older fellow would show up with uh, stories of his sexual exploits with his girlfriend. Oh. We had to shut that, that down real fast. I was like, dude, there's a, literally a child in the room. This is inappropriate. You, no go. You're out of bounds. We shut that down real fast. And the younger child, the, the younger, younger child, the child, the 11, 12 year old, however old he was, his mom was oddly trusting in dropping him off and leaving and coming back four or five hours later to pick him up. 
I mean, the 80s were a different time period. <laughs> true, but true. Still. Just me thinking now, I've got a 15-year-old, and I'm like, would I do that with my kid, <laughs> right? I don't know, because we were legit strangers, like phone number on an index card on mm-hmm. a corkboard type thing, yeah. right? We did meet her initially when he got introduced to the group, and she got to at least meet us, but not get to know us. Anyway, the older fella started offering rides to the kid, giving him a ride home. Like, we ended early. The older fellow liked to try to sit next to the kid and touch. Oh. And that developed later. Uh, honestly, we should have ousted this guy like real fast. Once the touching started, I was like, nope, done. You're out. Go home. Don't come back. You guys were kids yourselves. True. You know, you were kids yourselves. And, and having an adult doing that. It's hard. I wouldn't hold it against yourself that it took you a while to recognize what was happening. But you absolutely did probably an astoundingly mature thing for that age level to basically just be like, nope, we're done, you're out. The touching didn't go on long, and it wasn't, it was grooming touching, not sexual touching, which th- th- it's a fine distinction, but it was advancing towards the no no zone, what we were talking it's called the no no square, right? You know, nobody touches <laughs> you in the no no square, you know, between the shoulders and the hip points. Uh, anyway, it was advancing towards that when I, ca- I became aware, because I'm running the game, I, you know, there's a lot of things going on, I'm doing a lot of mm-hmm. things. And I noticed one of my players was staring real hard at older guy and kids sitting next to each other. And I was like, what is he looking at? And that focused my attention on what was going on. I was like, whoa, hold on. Stop. Hey, you older guy, you're out. You're done. And he kept showing up at game time. We wouldn't let him in. We had to threaten to call the cops. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it got real ugly, real bad, real fast. So, so how I change things, when I'm playing with strangers, especially around children, I am much, I'm hyper aware of social safety for everyone at the table, not just the kids. But when kids are involved, that awareness level goes up because of that one experience that happened to me, gosh, some 30 years ago. That's pretty intense. <laughs> yes, yes. And I got to say, that is the only time I have seen that happening at a, happen at a role-playing table. Mm-hmm. So listeners out there in the wide world, it does happen, yes. But please don't think it's a common occurrence. At least I hope it's not. Hasn't been for me. I don't think I've ever seen that. Type. I've seen people of the same age where one person is being inappropriately flirtatious with the sure. other. You know, basically the creeper at the table. Yeah, yeah. Those are a different type of bad player. But I've never seen I've never seen a someone going after a child like that. Yeah, it was like twenty years twenty years age gap between the two, and I was like, eh. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to something hopefully a little <laughs> less creepy. Uh, does anybody else have? events that have caused them to change how they game master. I learned relatively quickly running convention games to be very careful about how I crafted the opening of a scenario. I had a session where I was running a Doctor Who game. Uh, It was called The Birds of Alcatraz. And the Doctor is not involved in my Doctor Who games. I have a, a group that I call San Francisco Torchwood, which is just a bunch of characters who all have different levels of experience with the weird science stuff of Doctor Who, and usually come together to deal with problems. One of those characters is an ex-companion who traveled with a doctor at one point, who happens to be a veterinarian. And because this scenario was called The Birds of Alcatraz, (laughs) I decided that the most obvious way to start this off would be to have somebody who knows the veterinarian reach out and say, hey, the birds are behaving strangely on Alcatraz. Could you go investigate? The problem was, the first time I ran this, I got a player who picked that character because they were an ex-companion and they were a Doctor Who super fan. And 
when I said, okay, this is the setup, who do you call first? Gesturing at all the other players at the table. Because I, I very clearly stated at the beginning, you know all of these people. You are connected to all of these people. You have all dealt with weird stuff with them before. Who do you call first? He made up an NPC that he was going to call first. Ugh, ouch. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. you know, I role played with him a little bit, trying to move it fast. And then I'm like, okay, so who are you going to call next? He made up another NPC. <laughs> oh. And I'm finally like, okay, when are you going to contact some of your friends here? And he's like, I'm not. I had no idea how to handle that. <laughs> so I looked across the table at the other players who were all patiently waiting. Oh, good for them. And I was like, okay, who have I got here? Oh, I've got the artist. The artist is a psychic. Artist, hey, you suddenly have a vision that you need to gather everyone and get down to the wharf. <laughs> Yes, I'm going to do that. And she role-played, calling every single one of the other players at the table, telling them that they needed to be there. And there were some great little interactions cool. with all the other characters. And they all showed up and basically crashed the veterinarian's apparently planned solo game. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, I learned, okay, I need to be careful about how I start one-shots so that I don't potentially have a player just derail the action because they refuse to engage with the other players. I actually just recently at, at a convention I was at, I had a player who kept having his character go off by himself. I finally got to the point where I was like, look, I'm trying to get you guys to the end of this game, to the climax <laughs> of the story, and I need you to be here with everyone else. Oh, oh, okay. I get to the end. I describe the, you know, like they're, they're doing their thing. I get to the end. I describe the climactic thing, the miracle that they all witness. And he's like, well, I was outside doing it. I was like, no, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you can do to account for those players that just don't play well with others. Yeah. Now, have either of you ever run into a situation where you've like, Talk to somebody or join a game where the GM has a rule that seems pretty weird and arbitrary, <laughs> but you find out that it was because they had a bad experience. I'm talking about things like, like, oh, I don't allow couples at my table because they had a bad experience with a married couple at their table before. I'm trying to think of a time where maybe a previous bad player impinged on my future fun, even though they weren't there, <laughs> but I, nothing really comes to mind. I'm sure it's happened. But it, when I encounter the weird rule, I'm like, okay, I just kind of, it's, you know, their rules to adjudicate, as so long as they're not being abusive about it, I just kind of smile and nod and go along with it. <laughs> I've run into a few uh, instances, not so much about, like, social rules, like, you can't have significant others at the game or anything like that, but I have joined games where it's like, well, you can't play that species, and you can't play that class. And, you know, when you ask them, it's because someone either played the, the character really obnoxiously and they don't want to deal with it anymore, <laughs> or somebody really abused, you know, a particular class and they don't want to deal with the mechanics of it. I've seen it from that angle before. <laughs> Speaking of our, our, our dear Senda, the anti-Kender rule, no one is allowed to play a Kender. Actually, a buddy of mine, good friend, game with him today, been gaming with him 23 years. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway, um, Bill does not allow illusionists in his first edition or similar era of D&D &D, uh, games, 
because the illusion spells are horribly broken if you have even the slightest glimmer of imagination. Because a lot of them are, if you come up with an illusion of a wall collapsing on somebody, they just die. I mean, well, they get a saving throw, but if they fail their save, it doesn't matter if they've got 300 hit points. The wall falls on them, crushes them, they die, even though it's an illusion. Because that's how the spells are phrased in the really old rule books. So no illusionist. There's like not a lot of mechanical adjudication for some of those older illusions either. They'd mm-hmm. be like, right. if someone pokes and prods at this wall and asks the GM the right question to convince the GM that their character would think this was an illusion, then they can get a save. But right. if Until the GM then. doesn't decide that, then they're just screwed <laughs> and the illusion does whatever it does. The shouted declaration of, I choose to disbelieve. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, that's funny. Because I used to hear people say that all the time. I disbelieve. And I don't hear that as much now. And I guess that's a that's a, a, a tribute to people writing better rules for illusion. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think you got it spot on right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a there is a, a factor of game design also being put into play to try and avoid situations like some of these and like one of the the things i hear is you can't design you can't design away from bad players if you try and do that you're going to just end be in this endless loop of making a nearly unplayable game because you're gonna disallow all of the things that would make a bad player ruin your game but let's let's face it a bad player is going to ruin your game anyway yes it's almost always better to directly talk to someone when they are causing something not to be fun at the table than to try and either create rules or something I ran into when you try to in the game set up situations to where, okay, they can keep playing this terrible thing, but I'm going to set up these guardrails. And as long as they work with me, then they can keep doing this. And I did this. I inherited an age of rebellion game from a friend of mine that, that started running it. And then they changed his hours at work. So I said, I'll run it, and I didn't want everyone to have to make brand new characters because they'd only been, they'd been playing them long enough that they were attached to them, but not long enough that they felt like it was a good time to make new characters. The problem was, my friend also handed me off one of the players who wanted to have an Imperial Spy as one of the characters in this Rebel Cell. Uh Uh-oh. Now, I should not have even allowed this, but I thought, (laughs) okay, this was a previous agreement I'm taking over this game. This isn't my game. So somehow I don't feel like I am fully responsible. So I have to honor what was already agreed to in this game. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to take this this player aside and say, okay, you're an Imperial spy, but the ISB has contacted you. The Imperial Security Bureau has contacted you and they want you to undermine the planetary governor because they think he's incompetent. And once the planetary governor has been overthrown, then they're going to send a military governor and lock this place down. And then that'll be like the end of the campaign. And then you can make your big decision whether you're going to turn on the rest of the party or not. And he was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. So I'm thinking, I have solved it. (laughs) I have solved a social problem with rules (laughs) without directly (laughs) dealing with it. I had not. Um... So this character, this character, the player proceeds to have his character just do all sorts of terrible things to the other players. He had um, one of the other players, he had them working as his servant and let like a stormtrooper interrogate them. And she had talked to the stormtrooper into letting her go. And he was like, I don't know. She was rather impertinent. Don't you think she deserves a few, uh, you know, lashes with the uh, neuro whip? And it was like, what are you doing? 
he did stuff like that like two or three times and the players were all sitting here like there was one one of the the pcs was at this point or the player was at this point more interested in catching him as an imperial spy because he was like <laughs> i know you're a spy he told the player and the player was like oh all none of this i should have let happen this was all terrible i should have started the campaign over and the way this has influenced my gming going forward is one i don't like player character secrets that are not known to everyone else it's fine for you to have a character that wants to have a secret but that secret should not be something that is going to ruin the fun for everyone else at the table yeah and yeah. just learn to role play when it comes up you know you don't need to try and drop that bomb on the group by making it as shocking as possible and the other thing is i am not going to run a game where somebody is a traitor working against the rest of the party i don't care how much fun you think it's going to be, I am not going to run that game. Well, it's it's interesting looking at like a lot of older GM advice that tells you how to punish a bad player mm -hmm. by punishing yeah. their character. Yeah. Right. I was not the GM of this game. It was a game with way too many players because the GM <laughs> didn't know how to say no. <laughs> and the situation was that we were at some grand event that was a peace talk between different factions and there were going to be some people speaking at this who we were hired to protect we were hired as the security for this event and there were going to be some people that we were supposed to be protecting that had some kind of vile beliefs but we were supposed to be protecting them so we're doing our thing and we're all just like oh, this one guy's talking we don't like him but at least he's trying to make peace so we're not completely at war with him when one of the players is like i shoot him uh oh <laughs> at which point the rest of the game we were we were only about like a quarter of the way into this game the entire rest of the session devolved into a full-on battle between that guy's soldiers that had come with us, and then a small contingent of us that were trying to kill the player that killed him. Oh. <laughs> and like the GM just let it go. And oh. like I'm like, this is this is not I mean, I suppose this is fun for some people. Yeah. But this is yeah. not fun for me. And that was one of those those sessions where I kind of learned like there's a point to letting the players have agency. Mm-hmm. And letting the players ruin the game. Yeah. You really you really want to be careful about allowing everyone to have agency to do the stuff that they want their character to do, but at the same time not do it in a way that derails the game for absolutely everybody else. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. I mean, honestly, a lot of these running into a bad player and trying to correct stories have led to me basically just being a lot more careful about setting expectations in a session zero. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's what a yep. lot of these turn yeah. into. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I had learned, this was back even in the 3.5 era, was I started interviewing players at a neutral location when they were interested in joining a game. I did that as well. Yeah, I don't want them at a house if I yep. don't know that they're gonna be <laughs> that they're gonna be a good fit, and I don't want to just drop them into a game if I don't think they're gonna be a good fit. See, I did that, and the guy still turned out to be a raving creeper. Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's not results one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were gaming at my house, and uh, we had some soldiers. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs, big military town. We got five military bases here in town. And some uh, soldiers from one of the military bases were in uh, like off deployment for like six months, wanted to join a game before they got deployed back to wherever. 
And I was like, sure, let's meet at such and such coffee shop. I think there were four of them and we already had three or four people in our group. So it'd make a, a little big of a group, but temporarily. So we met at a coffee shop, had a meet and greet, liked the guys, gave them my address and said, show up here at this time on this day, blah, blah, blah. We're playing this game. I lived in a cul-de-sac at the time and in town and not a lot of parking spaces. So two of them parked on my lawn, mm. ruined my irrigation system just from the weight of their trucks, just crushed pipes. And when they left, oh. one of them peeled out in my lawn and left big furrows in my lawn. So I call them up and I'm like, hey, you guys you know, need to show up and fix this or pay me many thousands of dollars because it's going to cost me that much to resod, re-irrigate, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, we didn't like gaming with you anyway, you know, pound sand. Cool. I know your names. I know your base. So I called the base <laughs> and talked to their commanding officer. Ooh. Their next leave time, they got to show up with uh, the, their CO uh, shovels, piping, irrigation equipment, and they fixed it all themselves while the CO, their commanding officer, watched. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the benefits of living in a military town is if the military... <laughs> Even out of uniform, screws up in that kind of manner. One, maybe two phone calls and you'll you put them back in line. Because the military and the civilians need to get along. Yes. And the officers at the bases are well aware of that. <laughs> we could probably go on for several hours <laughs> talking about our gaming war stories. And sure. how we, we learned to adapt to them or adjust to them. But I think we should probably start wrapping things up. Any last thoughts on... <laughs> How to handle like adjusting your GMing to adapt to a bad player, Jared? I think sometimes whenever something hits you the wrong way, a lot of times you feel very emotional and upset about it. And I think it's probably a good time to maybe call for a break at the table, get some deep breaths in and think about how much you need to react to mm -hmm. this. Like, for example, if it's at a convention and the rest of the table seems to be having fun and this person is just getting on your nerves, maybe you can make it through the rest of the session without dealing with this. On the other hand, if this is a campaign, maybe instead of being upset at the table in the moment and trying to react by like, you know, like you were saying, Ange, where, you know, you have tie bombers fly over and try and <laughs> blow up the guy that was the traitor. <laughs> I did that. I'm sorry. But <laughs> and he survived. So that was even worse. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you take a breath and realize, no, this is a bigger problem. This isn't a gameplay problem. This is a social contract problem. Now that I'm calmed down and not reacting with my, you know, understandably emotional state, you know, we need to address this in the proper venue rather than trying to hammer this game into some way of fixing someone's behavior, which is not what it's designed to do. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, JT? Uh, I, I think sometimes we can perceive a player as playing poorly, maybe because they don't understand the rule sets or the constructs of the game. And that can come from new players or players new to a game. My example is a guy was playing, uh, this is Pathfinder, and he had, a, I think he was half-orc, one of the bigger, stronger folk. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was playing a barbarian. He had a, the, the two-handed axe, and they're battling skeletons on a stairwell. And he says, I want to kick the skeleton closest to me. And my brain went full stop. I'm like, in your hand is a weapon that does D12. You want to kick him? You're not a monk. You're going to do a D3. Why? Right? I'm like, all right, uh, I guess roll to hit. And he did. He hit. I'm like, cool, roll a D3 and add your strength modifier. And the, the player got upset with me. He's like, what do you mean? No, I want to push him down the stairs with my foot. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't understand the player intent. He didn't understand the mm. constructs of the game. Yep. I was like, that's that's called a bull rush. And he was like, what's that? So we retcon 
not the whole round, but just his action. I'm like, all right, so there's this thing called a combat mover over base. The skeleton has a combat mover defense. You're going to roll a d20 at your base. You got to exceed to his defense, and then you can kick him down the stairs, and maybe he goes tumbling into the rest of the skeletons. And the player was like, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. I didn't know I could do that. I'm like, yeah, see page blah, blah, blah in the, the core book for all of the various combat and maneuvers you can do other than just I stand there and swing my sword or in his case, axe. And once the combat was over, he grabbed the book and went flipping through it. And he, and, and he was making nummy noises. He was like, oh, ah, yeah. Ooh. I, I, oh, I can grapple. Oh, awesome. Yay. You know, and, and, and he became a much more dynamic not just combatant during combats, but a much more dynamic player at the table because it opened his eyes. He, he realized he could do more than just stand there and do his 1d12 points of damage. So yeah, understand player intent. I think that's one of the things in, in, in general that I have learned over the years. It's like, ask them, what are you trying to do? What is your, the desired goal of what you're trying to do? Because back in the day, there was a lot of, you didn't tell the GM what you were trying to do because then they wouldn't let you do it. But if you nagled everything into place, there was nothing they could do to stop you. You had to ambush the game master with your plans so they couldn't yeah. foil your plans. Yeah, I get it. I'm not here to fight against you. I'm here to have fun and tell a story. And I want you to do cool things. So it's like, tell me what your intention is. I also will say that years of Star Wars video games teaching people <laughs> that an ATST is a boss monster has misaligned the idea that a party of regular people can fight an ATST in the Star Wars RPG. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where we'll end. There you go. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the Event Oracle. Looking to find out if signing up for an event will get you a good experience? Reach out to the Event Oracle and get a psychic view of whether you're going to have a good game or a bad game. The Event Oracle for all your convention planning needs. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Psycho with Advantage. Ange and Jared love talking about RPGs and D&D. Together, they share insights into the games they're running in the campaign journal and then tackle a variety of topics that affect the game in the DM's workshop. They're going to talk anyway, so they may as well record it. Maybe you'll even pick up an ancient D&D factoid about a previous edition of the game that you'll never use. What do you mean we like to talk about RPGs? <laughs> what? You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, at, at least for as long as Twitter is alive, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? So, um, by the time this is out, there'll probably be a an episode of the Tome Show where we're talking about uh, Keys from the Golden Vault, which I happen to be on. Because apparently just having a show about D&D doesn't give me enough time to talk about D&D on podcasts. <laughs> so if you want to check that out, that should be floating out there as well. What about you, JT? So I'd like to shout out a uh, Kickstarter. It's not a role-playing game, game Kickstarter, but it's a uh, Kickstarter running, being run by a buddy of mine, Travis Heerman. And he is redoing his uh, debut trilogy with uh, new cover art, new editing, uh, new layout, all that good stuff. He's re-releasing the trilogy in every format you can imagine. You know, ebook, audiobook, paperback, hardcover, slipcase, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just all the options to get, to get the book. I have the original first print, first runs of the trilogy sitting on my uh, signed bookshelf. I back this because I want to get the updated covers because they look awesome. <laughs> when this episode drops, you will have roughly 12-ish days 
to run off and back Kickstarter. It, oh, name of the Kickstarter. Hey, it's the Ronin Trilogy Renovation. Nice. It is set in feudal Japan with a fantasy twist. All, all the typical fantasy mythology mythos is in there. And as you can probably guess, Travis is not Japanese because his last name's Hearman. However, he did live in Japan for a good number of years. So he, he is very steeped in Japanese lore from living there and absorbing their culture while he was there. And it's fun to go to Japanese restaurants with him because he orders in fluent, non-accented Japanese, <laughs> which blows the minds of the, the wait staff because they're like, uh, you're awful white. Be speaking Japanese that well. <laughs> <laughs> the look on their face is fantastic. It's wonderful. That's a lot of fun. I had him order for me because he knows the food better than I do. So <laughs> anyway, that's my shout out is in the link to the Kickstarter will be in the show notes. So for me, the D&D movie is coming out very soon and they just released the stat blocks for all of the major characters on D&D Beyond. <laughs> so if you have a D&D Beyond count, account, you may want to go over there and check them out because they're kind of fun. It's going to be fun to see how closely these characters align to their stat blocks on the screen. <laughs> That's hilarious. The other thing that I thought was, was funny is there's a thing in uh, Keys from the Golden Vault where they talk about using rival crews to compete against you when you are doing the heist. And as soon as I saw those stat blocks, I was like, that would be fun <laughs> to have them as a competing crew in one of the heists in uh, Keys from the Golden Vault. There you go. <laughs> Their levels are a little all over the place, but yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so do you guys think this episode was good enough to keep us out of the stew? Or are we going to have to be the bad player? I'll be the bad player and throw Jared in just so I can run away. <laughs> <laughs> Ah! Uh...